The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2016, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon is from Saturday, June 4th. Fruit Beers vs. Fruit Flavored Beers, presented by Dan Kopman, Schlafly Beer, and Brian Nelson, Hardywood Park Craft Brewery. Hello and welcome. Uh, first, welcome to Savor, an American craft beer and food experience. Um, and more importantly, welcome to the Savor Salons, which are one of the little special places within Savor where not only do you get to try uh, a lot of beers in this salon, um, but you get to interact more closely with the people who brew those beers. So, um, a couple of housekeeping notes. Um, these salons are recorded for craftbeerradio.com. Um, so if you have a question, if you could wait two seconds to get the mic, um, those who aren't as fortunate as you, uh, when they listen to this later, will be able to hear your excellent question. Um, I'd like to introduce our two speakers and say thanks to both of them for being here. We have Stephen Hale from Schlafly Beer, um, and we have Brian Nelson from Hardywood Park uh, Craft Brewing Company. So thank you very much. Uh, thanks, guys, for coming out. I appreciate uh, you know joining in what we're about to share with you. Um, we have a lot of beers here, and you know the, basically our uh, concept for this this salon was to talk about fruit beers, uh, how we use fruits in our beer, and, and how we do uh, things, and how we meld those flavors together to, to provide the experience for you guys, and then maybe suggest some food pairings to go along with that. Uh, Brian hit the nail on the head, summed it up very well. Uh, one other small housekeeping note, or two really, my name is not Dan Kopman. That is listed in your program guide. He was unable to make it from St. Louis. He's my boss. He's the co-founder of Schlafly Beer with Tom Schlafly. But I have been uh, with the brewery since 1991 when we opened, so coming up on 25 years. And it's been a long, strange ride, and it's been a wonderful one. And everything tonight is about the fruit beers uh, Brian and Bart mentioned. So. Uh, the other housekeeping note is we welcome questions as we go along. We have some timekeepers to watch uh, because we've got nine, eight? Eight beers. Eight beers tonight. beers to try. So, uh, yep. so it's, not a speed, it's not a speed test, but we do want to review and taste a, uh, quite a number of beers uh, with you guys tonight. The first one, without further ado, is the Walking Tree Wheat, and I... There might be some, uh, some of the boxes they came in. I didn't think of that before. Okay, the, uh, the outside box that this comes in is pretty neat. Um, I don't know if we're supposed to pass bottles around for people to see it or not, but the, uh, it is a mango Hefeweizen, just over 4% alcohol. It's not a big, strong beer. It has similarities to uh, the second one we're going to try, our raspberry Hefeweizen, which is a, also a uh, lower-gravity, unfiltered uh, unfiltered American wheat beer. And they're very approachable, drinkable beers. And we don't stomp on the grapes like winemakers do. We add the puree we get from Oregon fruit. Yeah, we want to make sure that everybody has the beer for, uh, for sampling. That's a, uh, a good start. Uh, we get the, uh, or the, uh, the real puree from Oregon fruit that is added directly to secondary fermentation. So the fruit is actually fermented. And that's a key difference, and I think we're going to touch on that uh, topic several times tonight. We're not adding a flavor or a concentrate or an extract to the beer at the end of everything to make it to, to take a finished beer and make it a fruit kind of beer, fruit flavor. These are fruit fermented beers. So we'll touch on that a couple of times. I do have to mention that the, uh, the name of this beer, Walking Tree Wheat, uh, we came up with because of these trees 
I should know where it happens, but it's not in Virginia or Missouri, but in, uh, I think in Indonesia, these trees that actually lay down their branches and move across the earth. Not at the speed uh, that those trees in the trilogy, what are they called? The, uh, somebody knows more than I, what's that, what are they called? The ants? Yeah. They don't move that quickly. They don't really march and pick up the dwarfs and, and march across the, uh, across the face of the earth. It's okay. Uh, Got a new member in our uh, salon here tonight. <laughs> emergencies take place. So does everyone have the beer? Everyone's had? If I see an empty glass, that's either a good sign or you haven't had it yet. So, um, again, we do uh, welcome comments anytime about the beers. And Steve, you want to go a little bit about the possible food pairings you, want to, you would suggest with this? Um, since it is sort of our, you know, savor being a food and, and beer sort of pairing and, and how this relates. We're going to try to give you some insights into, you know, what, what we feel these beers go best, best with. I mean, there's a lot of different options out there, but, uh, you know, as, as we sort of craft our, our, our beer and as we're thinking about making our beer and the final product coming out, we sort of think about what foods we can, we can relate to it. So on my notes on this, uh, thinking about this beer, the amount of times I've tried it, uh, I lean towards things, I wouldn't sum them all up as picnic foods, but cheeses and uh, some charcuterie, but not, uh, not very uh, spicy charcuterie goes well with a beer like this. Hard cheeses, um, you can really make it up any way you want. You can take our recommendations and you can come up with better ones. Um, and you can come up with recommendations we make for another beer uh, that go better with this. But uh, since it's a light kind of beer, and I don't mean light in the sense of light beer. I mean in terms of uh, flavor components. It's not hugely assertive. It's not a double imperial extreme something. Um, so for a food pairing for this, I would serve this as an intro beer. If you're having a, a dinner, your great beer and cheese tasting dinner party or something, this would definitely be on the milder uh, milder side of things, milder cheeses, um, probably not any meats. I mentioned charcuterie, but I think I'll save that for some other, some other beers. So uh, definitely on the lighter side. Does anyone get white pepper out of this beer? And always remember, one thing I try to say when I'm uh, talking to people about uh, tasting various beers is swirl, smell, taste. And these, the, glasses, the glasses you have are perfect for the swirl, smell, taste. So aroma is everything in beer. Well, second to everything, I guess. Everything is the taste of the beer when you drink it. But don't miss the, uh, the aromatic qualities of the beer. So I think I'm over time before we get to the next beer, but I'm going to let uh, Brian jump in. Too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, what, one note on, on that when you're tasting beer uh, such as these, there's, there's that initial aromatic quality you get as you swirl it around. You bring that in through uh, uh, just through smell. Then you have that taste on your palate. But as you're swallowing it down, you get that sort of secondary aromatic quality too. So it sort of changes over time as, as you're actually drinking the beer. Uh, something to keep, keep track of when you're, when you're actually tasting beers, any beer in general, um, that, that helps you determine what sort of flavors, what sort of notes. And as you're tasting the food as well, when you're doing pairings, that, that's a big component of uh, why things match so well, why pairings match so well with beer. So what's, uh, what they're pouring right now is uh, one of our 
Brewer Artist Series beers, what we added a Brewer's Artist Series, what we, let, what we allow people to do, um, or allow our brewers to do, is to come up with a recipe, basically all on their own, from start to finish, from piloting it all the way up to our 20-barrel system. Um, I guess I didn't go into a little detail what my role is in the brewery as well. Uh, I've been with Hardywood uh, since, since the, the beginning, since 2011. Uh, we're going on our fifth year anniversary now, and I'm the head brewer. Um, but what we try to do beyond sort of our core or flagship beers is allow our brewers to actually get a design, a, a beer concept, sort of from inception all the way to marketing. Uh, <clears throat> so we can get a little bit out in the market, do a 20-barrel batch, which is a lot of beer for a one-off uh, if, if we're just you know, servicing our local area. And this was one of those beers. So this is a Lichtenhainer. And the fruit that's in this, uh, our brewer decided to put pear in this. So you get a little bit of the pear note on the, on the end, but it's actually a, a German-style smoked sour. So it's interesting. You get the smoke, the smoke flavor or the smoke aromatics right off the bat. You get a little bit of flavor in there, but the pear sort of cuts that, and then you have sort of those lemon characteristics uh, that you know from the acidity and the kettle sour that we do on that. So it's 50% smoke, uh, smoked malt in there, Beechwood uh, smoked malt uh, from Great Maltery Wireman's, and then. Uh, we kettle sour that and allow the pH to drop. So we're adding some uh, lactobacillus in there to actually get that pH down to somewhere around uh, 3.8, 3.9. So it's not a, a incredibly uh, tart, but you do get those lemon characteristics out of there that uh, I think couples with the sweetness and the aromatics of the pear. Um, this beer, <laughs> our, our, our brewer Ken, he's very German style beer oriented. And he's also, you know, a fan of uh, torturing our uh, marketing department and also our sales guys. This beer is called uh, Grossa, Grossa Teufel, uh, which we're actually serving down there, the base version of this without the pair down at the, at the, uh, uh, the, the booth down there um, at Saver. And, yeah, it, basically what that means is uh, Big Devil. Why he chose that, I'm not sure, other than just maybe to torture our, our sales and marketing team to go out and try to sell this. But these are one-offs, something you can't really get out in the market. This was only draft only in-house in our brewery, so uh, it's a very special beer you guys are tasting. Um, what I, you know, would consider a, a really good pairing with this is, uh, you know, instantly when I tasted it, it's sort of a, a gargonzola cheese, you know, blue cheese, those types of flavors that sort of cuts through that uh, sort of creaminess, almost, you know, if you had a goat cheese that just cuts through it. Uh, you have that little smokiness to it as well that, that pairs well with a, with a gorgonzola uh, cheese. Um, and, and, you know, in processing the, the pear in this case, you know, we, we have gone through several different uh, methods and, and sort of sources for our fruit. And, you know, Stephen mentioned Oregon fruit, which makes wonderful products, uh, wonderful fruits that we can get in aseptically. This one was a uh, pear we got into, you know, buckets from a local uh, pear orchard. And what we had to do is that, you know, we had somebody in the culinary area sort of cut it up into little chunks. We then put it through a processor to make a puree out of it and then had to heat it up, basically double boil it in order to make it uh, suitable to, to go into, into beer. And I think we'll probably go through a lot of, we'll talk about a lot of why that's important uh, through the discussions tonight about, about fruit in beer and how the re-fermentation um, needs to be aseptically <laughs> taken care of. So I was afraid this was going to happen whenever we're given the opportunity to have a beer in our hand and a willing group of people who are also interested in the same subject matter 
I'm afraid we're going to have to ask our esteemed uh, coordinators here for an extra hour of time because I know this is going to take a lot longer than we had envisioned. Not just because we have eight or nine beers to taste, but you mentioned your brewer came up with this, torturing your marketing department. I'm feeling a sense of self-torture while we recommend things like gorgonzola cheese to go with this, and we're not sampling that for you. So apologies for that, but consider the uh, fabulous array of things awaiting for you downstairs. Um, <laughs> That should whet the appetite. We promise to be done by the appointed hour. Close to it, Bart. We won't go over. Um, so Brian also mentioned um, time at the brewery. I, uh, I indicated I've been there with, with Schlafly since we opened in 91, and we've seen a lot of changes over time. And, uh, and using making fruit beers, that actually came from you guys in our early years. The beer we're about to try, the Raspberry Hefeweizen, is a pretty straightforward, unfiltered American wheat beer with raspberry puree from Oregon fruit added to the beer. And it's not really pink. I mean, I don't know, is the beer more pink than a rose gold iPhone that I finally upgraded to from, uh, from my old four? It makes, makes a lot of sense to have a, uh, an upgraded phone for, uh, for many things in this world. But the, uh, we hadn't made a fruit beer until the mid-90s when our customers were suggesting that we make something uh, different than our regular lineup and beers. And keep in mind, in the uh, early mid-90s, there were only a couple hundred breweries in the country, and they're now, we're pushing 5,000 or 50,000 breweries next year or something. Isn't that right? No. There are 4,500-something breweries in this country, and I think the biggest winners in all of that are the customers who are able to go get freshly made beer at more and more uh, places. And, uh, and that speaks volumes to, uh, to the general world of all things local and CSAs and, uh, and experimenting. Sorry, I know I'm, I'm uh, segueing off the topic. Uh, this is one of the more straightforward fruit beers you'll try. And it's also a favorite of many of our rock and roll brewers who drink a lot of extreme imperial beers as well, but they come back to this beer because it's so drinkable. 4.1% alcohol, low IBUs, uh, really, uh, uh, really approachable. If only I knew exactly what it tasted like. Now, Stephen brings up a good point of, of you know, why, why brew a fruit beer? You know, what, what, What's the impetus behind that to, to actually get it and, and make a beer with raspberries or blackberries or, uh, you know, any fruit that we're trying to use, pear, grapefruit, uh, pineapple, which you're all going to experience tonight. And, and, you know, our reasons from Hardywood is just sort of, it, it does come out of, a, a, you know, the culinary side of things of using different fermentable uh, items within your beer. Um, I think we take the same approach as far as brewing. We always do, uh, you know, a secondary fermentation on this, so it actually is fermented. It's fermenting those sugars that the fruit does provide, um, and then, you know, it, it, because of that, you know, it does take on some of the the fruit characteristics. Um, so the aromatics are still stable. You're keeping that in the beer, and, and then you have that subtle fruit and the fermentation from that, which you're, you know, producing alcohol from, which is very different from just a malted beverage, you know, uh, a fermentation. So, you know, in, in that, you know, we, we took a, an approach in, in a very big way early on to try to use all local fruit. You know, we tried to use all in our first, in 2012, when we first decided to do a fruit beer, 
it was a big take on of, all right, let's, let's see how we can do. Let's do a 10 pounds per barrel of blackberries to put into this beer. And uh, I don't think I have the blackberry here, but it will go on to the raspberry that uses just as, just as much. And we do that, we try to get that in, and we, we ran into some challenges on how we're actually going to get local fruit processed enough in order to get it into the beer aseptically. But that, that's, that's the biggest issue um, that we're running into now as we grow as well. And, you know, us being, our two breweries are very different on sort of size-wise. We're, Hardywood's just turned, uh, you know, at, at the end of last year, just turned just under 13,000 barrels. Um, I think Schlafly's somewhere in the 60,000? 55, 60,000 barrel range. We're, we're in very different positions as far as like logistics and how to do all these things. Um, and luckily, there are some great companies like Oregon Fruit and some other, uh, you know, fruit puree uh, companies that do provide a really good product. But our sort of token is to try to take as much local fruit as possible, um, but getting that into a format where it's coming straight from the farm, coming to us. We have to do all these sort of double boiling and, you know, heating processes on the, on the fruit where we're not going to destroy the integrity of the fruit or boil off any, uh, you know, aromatic qualities or, or get it too hot. So we've come up with some clever, clever things that sustain us now, but probably won't sustain us in the future when we get to a 60,000 barrel range, which is the hope. Um, so th those things are all in the back of my mind, just seeing, you know, where the beer is right now and how we can get it to here in the future. I don't know if you wanted to comment on... Uh, yeah, uh, the ability to use fruit from your local farmers is quite enviable. My wife owns a local uh, food co-op company in St. Louis. She started eight years ago with her sister. And she's got a lot of farmer contacts that we use for a variety of things. But to when you get into the larger volume of production, you can use real local fruit. But it takes a, a dedication to make sure that it's safe. Um, quick show of hands of brewers, home brewers in the group here. For those who might know, um, the risks of adding sugar uh, that you haven't sort of put at a check level um, into by uh, stopping it from any additional uh, fermentation. You don't want to add that to your bottling. You don't want to add that so late that the, uh, that the beer starts to ferment again because no one wants a glass bottle bomb uh, out there in the market. So brewers have to actually treat it. If they, we don't get it aseptically from Oregon Fruit or other companies, and are they the sponsors of this salon or something? The they number of times we've be. met them at this point or mentioned them, the, uh, wherever you get your fruit, if it's aseptic and ready to go, you can add that late, but it's very sugary. So we add it to uh, secondary fermentation for uh, some fermentation in process. Uh, adding it late uh, has certain risks. So what uh, these guys do at Hardywood Park is the right way to do it. You still get the flavor elements and uh, all the real goodness out of the fruit uh, without the big risk. So... I noticed anyone, no one's asked questions yet, which is fine, but feel free uh, anytime with, I didn't mean now. Go ahead. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned the, uh, the dosing rate pounds per barrel. If you could provide that for all the beers, I'd appreciate that. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, um, for the uh, Grosse Teufel with Pear, I believe it was a half a pound per barrel. Uh, actually, more than that. It was probably a pound and a half per barrel. Um, so li light fruit on that one uh, in, in order just to, the amount of, you know, pear is very delicate, so you'd have to add a massive amount of pear in order to get, you know, get those intense flavors out of there, so it's very subtle in that. Um, yeah, as we go down, you'll see, um, I think probably the next one, the peach triple from our side, uh, it starts to really gain some momentum and poundage per barrel, but I don't know if you want to comment. I'm doing the, if I'm giving a vacant uh, kind of 
stare and rolling my eyes in my head is because I'm doing some math very quickly of the 42-pound uh, boxes. I think 42. So we use 126 pounds in a 15-barrel batch uh, at Schlafly at the uh, taproom for our raspberry. So whatever the math comes out to be, it's not. Uh, it's less than 10 pounds a barrel. For the beer you had prior to this, the mango Hefeweizen, we probably used two and a half times that because mango isn't a hugely assertive fruit. It's not big and spicy. It's not jalapeno. It's not a double IPA. It's a really subtle kind of fruit, and you need to use a lot more to get that characteristic into the beer. The raspberry, a little more uh, forward and assertive. So, uh, so under 10 pounds, probably 8 pounds a barrel or so for the, uh, of the puree. And uh, puree is basically take the fruit and smash it up and make sure it's safe to use in food processing. Yeah, Steve's got a good point about where, you know, how we determine uh, how much impact and how many pounds per you know, beer barrel, being 31 gallons per barrel, uh, of how much fruit you do put in there and the fruit that you are, does he take and determine you know, what, that's, what that finished product's going to be? So you're not going to get the sweetness there because a lot of that's going to get fermented out. Uh, but you you know those flavors and all it will integrate into the beer. But a lot of it, you know, the aromatic qualities of some of these lighter fruits, these delicate fruits, don't come out when you know you you want to swirl it around and be like, oh, you, what what is that flavor that's coming out? What's that aromatic? Is it raspberry or is it too light? Is it too subtle? Uh, so that's sort of the brewer's job to figure out where that where that balance is. Um, the the next beer we're coming up here is uh, <laughs> sort of the extreme side of of how how much fruit we can put in beer. Um, this one is a big one for us as far as poundage, and, and we tried a lot of different variations on this on the pilot system. It's our uh, what we call our peach triple, so it's a Belgian triple uh, that we add a massive amount of peaches in, and also cut a little bit with apricot as well, just to give it that little a uh, little more aromatic quality to it. But for this beer, the pounds per you know of fruit per barrel is in the 42 pound range. It's a massive amount. Um, you know, when we, when we look at even fermentation capacity and how we're building up, we have 120 barrel fermenters. It's the biggest fermentation capacity or uh, tanks we do have. We're brewing 120 barrels in there. We're about putting another 20 barrels on top of that. And luckily our fermenters have some headspace to, to accommodate. Second fermentation isn't as rigorous. It can be. Um, with this, it is a little bit. So you do get a little blow off on the, on the, uh, you know, the, the blow off arm going into, uh, you know, during fermentation. But so this is. Even though peach is probably somewhat subtle in this beer, there's a lot of peach in this beer. Uh, so you do see that as a, uh, you know, when we're looking at, when we did look at pilot, pilot batches on this one, it went from, all right, let's use the same thing we're using in our raspberry stout, you know, 14 pounds per barrel. That's what we're going to try to do for this. It was almost completely unnoticeable. You know, the, the triple characteristic and the yeast characteristics, the Belgian yeast sort of took over on that. So we started adding more. All right, let's do 27 pounds. See how that works. And then we kept on increasing it in the sweet spot. You know, I would actually like to add a little bit more fruit in there, but then you have to go through costs and logistics <laughs> and actually volume that you're putting in there. But it is, you know, we landed on around 42 pounds, which is about a, you know, a case of that Oregon fruit. And this, this is another Oregon fruit product that we do. They have wonderful peach. And again, uh, sort of cut with some apricot to uh, kind of get that, uh, you know, I felt it gave a little bit more aromatic quality to it. Um, sort of similar to the peach, uh, you know, aroma, but sort of getting into that uh, that range where you didn't have to rely on that much peach. You sort of uh, supplement it with the uh, apricot as well. 
So one thing Brian mentioned earlier that I, uh, I don't want to admit, I want to make sure we cover is our experience is with real fruit and purees and flavor, flavors, real fruits in cycle, in uh, fermentation, not late addition, as I mentioned earlier, not trying to flavor the beer. So I actually have no experience with extract. You can call it an extract, like making a cold coffee toddy, you could call that an extract, but it's not really extracted and synthesized down. So uh, juices, extracts, concentrates later in the addition added to the final beer, I don't have any experience with that. And the amount of, this is in reference to uh, Brian's comment of how much we use per barrel. You have to use a lot more, especially with the more delicate tasting uh, fruits like we've uh, sampled so far. It takes a lot of uh, peach and raspberry to a lesser degree, but mango takes a lot of those things to add flavor and characteristic to the beer. Uh, adding it later as an extract or something might be very easy. Uh, don't tell the controllers in the company. It might be cheaper, but you'll also taste it. And really, oh, that's yeah. what this entire salon is about, is the characteristic of the beer, the flavor of the beer, how it tastes real, because it's made with real fruit, effectively. And that is not a disparaging comment about other beers that uh, use flavorings and extracts and, and things later. When, when we both get up to a couple million barrels a year, don't ask us how we're adding the fruit to the beer. Let's hope, might, let's hope the we get there, right? Might, <laughs> the picture might change at that point. So I'm not making a promise now. When I'm sent out into the field, I think everyone at Schlafly worries that I'm going to overpromise and underdeliver. Try not to do that too much, but yeah. And, and, and adding, you know, there's all sorts of challenges when you do add, you know, actual fruit purees. Um, you know, this one in particular, we, it's you can see it's it's hazy. That's a lot to do with the pectins with, that are within that fruit, and we like it that way. It's not where we're, we're not going to try to get rid of it. Um, it does have a you know a cloudiness to that, and and we're not going to. We're not going to worry about it. You know, so, so if you're just adding some peach, you know, extract to the beer, it's going to be a clear beer in the end. It's going to be a nice Belgian beer. Uh, but this is something that you know we saw. We, we looked at it when it first came off on our pilot system and said, "All right, is that is that the clarity we want? Is that going to reflect well of you know the quality of beer that's coming out?" And I think you know, as craft brewer, craft you know drinkers are actually getting more educated on what's going into the to the beers and everything. This is going to be perfectly acceptable. It doesn't have to be you know, filtered to the end and, and, and you know, or put enzymatic things in there to, to eliminate pectins or anything like that. It's still in there, and it's still very much fruit-forward. Um, and, the, you know, the visual content is, is, is what it's all about, so. Questions? I'll ask a question. So far, we've had four different styles of beer with four different fruits. How do you decide which fruit you're going to pair with which style? I think the way when, when we took, I think we took a leap when we did, uh, the, you know, one of our beers we are going to taste tonight as far as, you know, look, we, we started looking local fruit first um, and local ingredients and, and, and we tried to pair what we could figure out, whether it be, how do, what goes with chocolate? Let's look at some desserts. You know, when we're doing a stout, which, you know, we do a lot of stouts in our sort of September on through January time in our, in our reserve series beers. <laughs> reserve series that we do have that Hardywood releases always uses a local ingredient. That, that's sort of our, that's what we stand on. And it could be a fruit, it could be, um, you know, ginger, it could be honey. It also come from, it has to come from Central Virginia or Virginia in general. Uh, so when we took that and we took a leap of, we're doing a chocolate stout, what sort of dessert 
do we like? You know, what, what goes well with chocolate? Uh, and for the chocolate side of things, we're, you know, in the beer, we're using chocolate malts, we're using a little cocoa nib in order to, to get that flavor quality. But beyond that, you know, we were thinking what fruit dessert would, would go well, and we ended up picking raspberries because of that. Um, it wouldn't have worked with peach, it wouldn't have worked with some other things, and it, it might actually, you know, work with some cherries, and we, do, we have done that before. So it's kind of, again, getting back to that culinary side of us, you know, creativity-wise, the same what do we like to eat? You know, what, what do we like to taste? You know, and then we pair that with a beer, and could you put those into one sort of liquid format? You know, does that... Yeah, I've, to answer Bart's question directly, too, um, raspberry is such a wonderful berry, such a great fruit characteristic. Uh, when I used to live in Maine in the late 80s, early 90s, I made a uh, raspberry mead, and I wish I still had some of that left. I tried to extended as long as I could. It was beyond ambrosia. It was one of the best beverages I've ever made. And it, the, the fruit carries very well. So we made rasp- raspberry hefeweizen because we knew people would like it. We used mango hefeweizen because we'd, sorry, we used mango in the uh, unfiltered wheat beer because we'd never used it before. We sampled a lot of mangoes, uh, a, a lot of mango purees, and we chose one that had a good spicy characteristic, which is why I probably get that white pepper characteristic in, uh, in the walking tree wheat. We don't add white pepper to that beer, but uh, the, that came from the, uh, the mango itself. So we, uh, we do listen to our customers, their requests. Um, so it's what you think would go well with a particular beer. Uh, raspberry stout is one of my favorite styles of beer. Um, there's a beer, I will give a special plug since Brian mentioned his booth just outside these doors, downstairs in the main hall. Uh, we have a double bean blonde ale. It is a coffee chocolate blonde beer. Coffee isn't, well, if you think about it, beer's not really a local thing anyway, right? Where do all the ingredients come from? Northern latitudes around the world. They're not all local ingredients. Coffee and chocolate, same way. But we all love those ingredients, so we use them in uh, what we would call our Jedi mind trick beer downstairs, the double bean blonde. And, uh, and those are examples of two other ingredients that seem to make absolutely no sense to use in a particular beer, but it comes out really well. Speaking of which, is everyone ready for breakfast? I think you've probably all been uh, given a sample of the grapefruit IPA and uh, in the great fruit beer comeback, as it were, in the craft beer world. I certainly smell grapefruit when I, uh, oh, when I smell this beer. It's delicious. So it's... Uh, uh, I, by the way, I meant to mention this at the beginning. We can give you all the statistics you want on these beers. You may or may not remember them by the end of the night. The <laughs> ABV, the IBU, those are all over the place. Um, uh, not just our websites, but the information is out there. So rather than misquote what the ABV is on every beer here, which we know, of course. We, yeah, we, we know stone. Don't. We know Stone Cold. Uh, we're, we'd rather tell you the stories about the the behind stories on these beers. Like working with, here's this company name again, Oregon Fruit, they had never made a grapefruit puree, but we worked with them to learn how to do it and make this puree so that we could use a puree and a beer. And the result is in your hands. Um, Citra hop is the main hop in here. There are three hops in this beer, but Citra really stands out as uh, as the hop. I haven't even tasted it yet. So I'm gonna let Brian wax on more. Yeah, no, I mean, this this is, a great example of, of, of 
within a hoppy beer, um, you know, a, a IPA that works well with the hop profile, citra being, you know, sort of a very citrus forward hop, but then getting that grapefruit, uh, you know, sort of layer on top of that, that is actual grapefruit. Um, you know, we, we, as brewers, work through a lot of different variations on, especially IPAs now, working through different hops and what they do and how they affect, you know, the, the final product, dry hopping versus, you know, late edition hops and, and getting essential oils out of things rather than, you know, what, what's, what's the balance of how many hops to put in there. Uh, but, you know, you can get a lot of grapefruit character out of the hops. But it's sort of a different type of grapefruit that you're getting. You, know, you get you get a little aromatic to it. This this is nice and balanced as far as where you know you're actually getting that. Uh, as far as yeah, waking up and getting some breakfast <laughs> grapefruit juice that that you're that you want to drink. And it, yeah, I think it's 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 a lovely beer. Yeah, it's uh, the the uh, target for this beer was a balance of grapefruit and IPA. For a lot of IPA lovers, this may not meet their expectations of being super hopped, but it has, it has been aggressively hopped, and it meets the technical specification, and it is hoppy, but you don't want to put in so many hops that you're obscuring the grapefruit. So we like to think that there's a good balance uh, in this beer for, uh, for both grapefruit and, and hoppy character. Comments? Anyone like to hold a microphone and wax on? Uh... Yeah, I think that the next beer we'll, we're, we're going to go to is sort of on a similar thread. Um, what we did for our West Coast IPA, and you know, for those of you, differentiation, very subtle, but you know, somewhat different on the West Coast IPA. It's a very drier beer um, as far as uh, you know, how it attenuates, and a lot of hop-forward you know, Pacific Northwest hops that are just super citrusy. Um, we use a, a pretty large cocktail of hops in this, this beer we call The Great Return, um, which the base beer alone, I think, is, is wonderful, but, uh, you know, it's one of our beers we, we, we put towards, uh, our charitable, you know, efforts towards, and this is called The Great Return uh, because our James River, which was our water source, that's what flows through, the, through Richmond, that's where we get our water source for, you know, for brewing, there was actually a, uh, there's starting to be a resurgence of the Great Atlantic Sturgeon, which has not been breaching in the lower part of the James past, you know, where Richmond is, where it actually has rapids and flood walls. Uh, that that uh, resurgence is all part of what the James River Association uh, is actually trying to conserve. So this is one of our charitable beers. We give back $10 per barrel sold of this beer to the James River Association to conserve that uh, and to help bring them back to the habitat, um, also just preserving our water in general that, that we're pulling our, our, you know, making our beer with, which is super important. Steve will agree with that. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, so what do we do on this? You know, we, we decided the beer is great standing alone. You know, could we do a different variation of it? And this is only, we do this one off. It's only kegs only. And we decided to do some pineapple um, and putting pineapple puree in there. Again, you get you know, if you look at it, it's, it's cloudy, it's, it's there. You have some fruit uh, sort of remnants on, on the pectin level. It does go through the, the, the second day fermentation on it, and, you know, you get some different flavors from what we could not get out of the hops. Um, there's a lot of Apollo, Simcoe, Citra, uh, Cascade, and I think the other one is Columbus, so a lot of sea hops in there. Um, but getting, you know, getting that, that side of things where we just wanted to add one extra dimension, see how it goes. People dig it, and, you know, we hope you do too. I can absolutely picture being on a catamaran in the uh, British Virgin Islands and opening 
a bottle or a can or a keg on a boat, maybe, of this beer because that pineapple characteristic and the citrusy component are really, to me, very floral and evocative of uh, tropical weather. Um, and these, these were harvested from the Virginia palm trees. These, uh, <laughs> Absolutely, pine- yes, yes, pa- yes. Pineapple, Virginia palm sorry, trees. That's, that's coconut. There's this, <laughs> I think of coconut when I taste a beer like this, too, even though I don't taste it. But the uh, pineapple trees of central Virginia are not to be missed. It, yeah, if you've ever uh, taken pineapple or, or you know, the pineapple purees as a very thick consistency, it's almost, you know, if you've taken chunks of pineapple and made a smoothie out of it, that's basically what it is. It's very thick, very, uh, you know, sort of, almost like a custard. Uh, so it, pumping that is, and it is, it a cha- is pretty much a challenge, getting it in there, and then, uh, you know, getting it out is even more of a challenge. Out of, and this is why we only do this on a small scale. It's at three barrels at a time. Um, sometimes we've done some 20 barrel batches of it, but it sort of just settles down and basically concrete in the bottom of the uh, tank after, after you let it settle. Um, you know, so we, we do, uh, you know, our only sort of sil- source of filtration is a centrifuge. So we just run it through, spin it around, so that spins all the solids out, meaning any pulp or anything like that. <clears throat> so you do have, you know, clear beer, what we call clear beer. It certainly is hazy, hazy because of some of the fruit characteristics and the, and the pectins that are in there. But we don't, you know, run it through, uh, you know, any sort of plate and frame filter to strip out any sort of aromatics. It's still there, um, and, and the flavor is still there. And we, we find that to be the best method. Given the luxury of time, I think Brian and I would have welcomed the opportunity to get together and taste all these beers prior uh, to this salon. We did not have that opportunity, but I think I might have put this beer as one of the first ones, as much as anything, because pineapple is a sign of welcome. Um, at an Airbnb I stayed at recently, there was a pineapple on the table in the morning, and I had to leave early, and I thought, should I take the whole thing? Should I, should I cut into it and, and say thank you, or do I just say, the pineapple is a nice gesture of welcome, but I got to go. So uh, pineapple and a beer says, welcome friends to our table. We're going to do a great beer dinner and tasting tonight, and uh, this is really good. It's uh, pleasant, it's sweet, it's, uh, it's got a good characteristic, so... Uh, you gentlemen were talking earlier about treating the uh, f- fruit parades uh, aseptically. Uh, do you have any thoughts about various techniques, uh, pasteurization, sulfites, or other methods? Uh, yeah, I can speak a little bit over sort of the evolution of how we've done it. Um, you know, when we were somewhere around the 1,200 barrel mark <laughs> per year, uh, which was in our first year of production where we did a uh, a fruit beer. We use, you know, the, the metabisulfates and things like that in double boiling in order to just make sure it's absolutely sanitized or at least up to a, you know, 160, 170 degree mark for 20 minutes in order to pasteurize it. Um, as we've grown, and then we used to do that in just like kegs. So we'd take, take a keg apart, put the fruit in the keg, put it in a, in a double, in a, in a pot full of water, double boil it, and it was great. It was only one keg per, at that time, and that was, that satisfied what we needed. Wait, wait a minute, Brian. You boiled a keg? Well, you put if you if you think about a pot, just picturing the water yeah. in the pot and a keg in that, and yeah, then you heated the keg. oil. <laughs> and we boiled a keg. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. I love the visual <laughs> of boiling a keg. Sorry, I have a, brewers. Brewers are a crafty lot. We come yeah, from we, yeah. a lot of home brewing backgrounds and mechanical backgrounds and just crazy things to do. So 
I'm taking that idea back to the uppers. I like that. There's always a solution, in my opinion. But we, we have, so we've, we've sort of graduated into, all right, we need to do more fruit now. How are we going to do that? Our latest or, you know, my latest sort of idea on how to do that is we have a couple of three-barrel uh, fermentation vessels. Uh, each of them have a, you know, a glycol jacket uh, in two zones. Uh, actually, just one zone on this one. So it's basically got a coil going around the conical and, and down to the bottom. Well, I got a brilliant idea to try to, uh, uh, how can we heat that total vessel up by using steam? So we have a steam generator, which we steam some barrels and things with. I put some steam through the glycol jack. I actually evacuated all the glycol, put steam through those jackets, and then did a circulation pump on the fruit itself. So it's in a puree format. It's, it's, it's very much, you know, could be pumped by a diaphragm pump and go back, back on itself and uh, waited till that got up to 160, 170, and let it rest for 20 minutes. And then once that is, we cool it down again with glycol, pump it into there so we're not destroying into the yeast when it goes in, um, and that has been worked well for us. Is that gonna stain us for forever? No. <laughs> it, it isn't, we're gonna be, you know, hopefully with these beers we do have, we're gonna be brewing more of it, and it's just gonna be ever, uh, with the local fruit in, anyways, this is what we're doing with the local fruit. We also supplement with, you know, the aseptic fruits from some of the companies we work with, but, you know, we, we sort of hang our hat on trying to use within these reserve series beers a portion, if not up to 50% worth of local fruit. Um, Agroberry's been one of our, you know, biggest sort of champions on that, provided us blackberries, provided us raspberries, uh, there's other variations of raspberries we have used from them using the same techniques to try to get them into our beer. <laughs> and, you know, we've, we've, we've figured out how to do that, but as we grow, it's an opportunity for other companies or another company which we're, you know, currently hoping to work through that, work with them and, and to have them invest in something that's on the East Coast that can do Virginia fruit so that we can, again, hang our hat on. We are using something local. It's getting processed in the format where it does come in into aseptic format so we can just push it in and not have to do it in-house. You've, uh, you've, you've talked a lot about growth tonight, and uh, you know, one of the questions I have is, you know, how do you balance the commercial end of the business where you, you're trying to drive very kind of specific beers that you're known for with the experimenting, and how do you kind of make those trade-offs uh, as you kind of strive for growth uh, as an overall business? Yeah, that's, yeah, it goes along with it. I think the, the way I approach it, uh, the way Hardywood approaches it is the goal is to get, you know, again, it's sort of looking at how you want to define it. We can work as hard as we want to to get that done. As far as, all right, we can, we can try to put as much money towards putting, you know, some, some mechanical equipment or anything like that to, to get some local fruit aseptic. And if we, if we decide to determine that that's, that's our goal, then we'll get it done. I think any brewer would, would sort of imagine that as, if we, if we want to do that, we're going to get it done. Um, but, yeah, there, there are challenges as we grow in. I mean, we've, we've started with... Uh, you know, our raspberry stout that you're tasting right now, it uses 14 pounds of raspberries per barrel, uh, seven of those pounds being from local fruit. And we did, originally did 40 barrels of that beer. Uh, this was two years ago. We're now doing 300 barrels of this. So, you know, it, it's, it puts stress on not only us, but it puts stress on the local farms too. Uh, you know, they can only produce so much. Does it, do they want to go farm, you know, go buy another plot of land to put more raspberries in? Um, but we feel that 
you know, it, it's, it's helping the economy at least maybe, I don't know, <laughs> you know, for, for everybody just to sort of grow with us. We, we hope that's what everybody wants to do. And it's the relationships we have with our, our farmers that, uh, that make it possible. And, uh, we hope they're on board with that as we grow. Limited edition. You True. get to a point of diminishing returns where the farms can't support it and the controllers who help run the company say, at this point in time, no more. Or let's, do, let's limit it to this because it doesn't... Because the last thing you want to do is raise prices to a degree that uh, it's not sustainable. Um, I'm going to answer part of your question with the beer after this because it applies to... Well, it's the last beer we have and uh, it's very different from everything else we've had so far. So, we have a new beer in, yeah, in front this, of us. Uh, yeah, so speaking on the raspberries, um, th this again was somewhat of a, uh, not a shot in the dark, we did do some pilots on it and things like that, but figured out where that raspberry content, uh, you know, how much we need to put in there to have an impact to sort of uh, complement the chocolate flavors, those deep dark chocolate flavors that are in there, uh, what yeast to use in order to make it you have a little bit of fruitiness there, but it's not overpowering, you know, the raspberry uh, characteristics to it. And then, you know, as the raspberry ferments out, it ferments out pretty dry. Um, so you do get, uh, it's, you know, it's 9.2% alcohol. This is a big beer. Um, but I think it finishes up. It's very smooth. You know, you don't get those phenolics or those alcohol notes to it. It's, it's uh, um, one, of, one of my favorites. And if you have a chance to go down outside, we are pouring our uh, bourbon barrel version of this, which we've added vanilla beans to, which takes on a whole different characteristic. Um, but again, all of this is secondary addition. All the fruits added to, you know, just as the, the you know, the, the primary fermentation goes into tail end, you know, the yeast is still viable, that's when we push in the fruit. Um, that way it sort of kicks back up again. You're not fighting, with, you know, the yeast for, you know, trying to get the... Um, you know, the sugars from the malt, it now just focuses on the fruit and it does attenuate out. And then, you know, it does take a longer process too. I'm sure, you know, if you look at just logistics and time-wise and how, you know, breweries are growing, you have to look at that as well. It's not a, you know, seven day or a 10 day ferment and you have to add an extra couple days on there for the fruit to ferment out. And then a lot of crash, uh, a, lot of, a lot of chance for it to crash cool and let those, those settle out. I don't know how you, you know, filter the beers um, at your facility, but, you know, we have to let it, let it, a lot of time to let it completely settle out so we're not having to struggle with that on the back end. Yeah, if you've got time and you've got temperature, then you've got assets on your hand that don't cost a lot like centrifuges right. and filters. But not everybody, not every brewery has the, uh, the gift, the luxury of spending that much time on it. If you can lower the temperature and spend time to crash it, it's a great way to reduce the solids in the beer. But most breweries do have to use filtration centrifuge to do that. And this is a great example of combining uh, a big beer, 9%. 9, 9.2, 9, 9. yep. 9.2% with uh, fruit. We have an imperial stout downstairs on the floor that's just over 10% and it's barrel aged. And uh, I'm keen to try Brian's beer, the, the barrel aged with vanilla. With vanilla added as well. Well, if, uh, if Bart weren't in the room, I might duck out the door now and go get a sample because I'm... <laughs> I'm really excited about, sorry, I'm not leaving, I'm still here. I'm really excited about trying that beer because one of the risks of this kind of an event is palate fatigue. So choose your beers carefully and keep the samples small. It's really, uh, it's really important to get the proper size sample to pair with the food. Remember, it's called savor. This is not the slam fest. This is a little, this is a little bit of this beer and the 
uh, food uh, pair, uh, pairing that the chefs have done a pretty fabulous job with uh, based on, on my experience last night. And I could barely get out of the booth. There were so many adoring fans coming to try all the great food, not just our booth, everywhere. They're all over the place. And it was, uh, it was a real treat to see that enthusiasm for this. So this kind of a beer, uh, I mentioned the, did I mention raspberry stout or raspberry mead that I made in Maine years ago? Raspberry stout, it's really a gift. Uh, Bart had asked uh, how we choose what fruits to add to what beers. To me, raspberry and stout, it's a match made in heaven. They're other great ones, but you kind of can't go wrong with this. So. Yeah, yeah, I agree. R raspberry is a very powerful, um, you know, sort of ingredient you can use. It, you know, there's a lot of different things, even within, you know, the sour beer realm and just, uh, you know, Belgian beers that, that do have a lot of the raspberry, you know, flavor to it. Again, the stout is, doesn't seem like it would fit with the raspberries, but it absolutely does. And if you look at any sort of dessert beer like that, you know, you're looking to compare this with a, a nice, you know, chocolate tart or something that has those, those fruit characteristics in it with raspberry. Um, yeah, that's, it's, this is one of our uh, beers that we took, took on, and, and it's starting to grow for us. But then again, it's that, that challenge of what Stephen's saying. How, how, how is that going to be sustainable in the future with us using you know, the local fruit? And we're hoping to, to, to figure it out, <laughs> I guess, is the biggest way around it. Yeah. Yes, we have a question. I know that you can get fruit flavors from yeast and hops and the, the other regular ingredients in beer. How much fruit can you get out of those ingredients? And, and are there only certain fruit flavors that you can get? Belgian triple. <laughs> yeah, no, the Belgian yeast is, is very complex, very complex. There's also, di I mean, you know, I found different hops that are uh, sort of the obscure ones now. Uh, Bramling Cross is one of my favorite ones because it does give like a black currant sort of uh, uh, aromatic to it, dark fruit aromatic to it, which is very strange for a hop, but it does have those characteristics to it. Um, but yeast is, I think, one of our tools that can be very, very impactful. Um, even, you know, we, we use a, a English-style ale yeast on this beer, which puts off some, you know, very fruity notes, sort of blueberry notes when you have it just on its own. Uh, adding that raspberry to it sort of complements that and, and makes it even more complex. Pretty much an infinite uh, number of beers that can be brewed in the world. It's not infinite. Everyone knows there's a finite number of malts and water sources and hops, although hops continue at a pace that astounds me, and they don't all begin with a C, but it seems like half of them begin with a C, and they continue to, be, to develop. We have a, a program um, at Schlafly, and we're making about nine or 12 beers a year in our hop trial program. And it's astounding, the differences among the, uh, the hop flavors that, uh, that are out there. So the fruit characteristics that can come from hops, not so much malt, yeah. but the yeasts in particular are, if it's not infinite, it's a really big number. So it, 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 and then multiply that times the number of breweries on the planet. And yeah, it's basically infinite. It, it's an infinite number of how many uh, different characters, characteristics you can get without using actual fruit. Once you add th fruit into the equ equation, it goes even bigger. Yeah, and, and a lot of fun you know, a function of that is uh, sometimes just during fermentation is temperature. What is the yeast going to do at a lower temperature? What is it going to do at a higher temperature? And a lot of the Belgian characteristics we sort of toy around with, how we manipulate those is manipulate the fermentation temperature. We have... You know, for our flagship beer, which you get a lot of, uh, you know, for the 
lack of better words, a juicy fruit sort of, you know, juicy fruit gum characteristic out of that beer, what we do is we set it at a low temperature, 67 degrees at knockout, and then let it rise all the way to 77. And so that generates its own heat as it starts fermentation, and so you get a lot of fruit notes out of it. A lot of these characteristics that we love um, will do that. And, you know, sometimes you just let the yeast go. Let it run, let it get up as high as it wants to and see what happens. Huge characters that come from that, uh, too. So there's another question on the... uh uh, since the breweries are so, I guess, like dependent on the local farmers, would it ever make sense for the brewery to, I guess, have its own farm to, you know, have control of everything from ground to bottle? Sure. If you got the space to do <laughs> yeah. it. Space, space uh, and time, uh, I think. Downtown yeah. St. Louis in the 70s <laughs> was a perfect uh, venue to film Escape from New York, but a lot of the land is being snapped up now, so there's not so much abundant farmland. But that doesn't mean that surrounding us, we're a very agricultural state, and we work with a lot of farmers on, on other things. But uh, it would make sense. Yeah, yeah it's one of the, do we want to, I mean, I think we could do that for sure, but I think we rely on the talents of the farmers themselves. You know, we, we don't, I don't look at myself as any sort of, uh, uh, an expert on how to grow raspberries or even hops, you know, that, that I know all, a lot about it, but don't actually want to get into doing it. I mean, we brew beer and use, use those ingredients. We rely on the guys who grow them to, to actually do it. But, yeah, it, but it's, it's partnerships. Uh, it certainly is partnerships. And, you know, if we were to invest any sort of, you know, money into a farm that says, listen, we need this much capacity, and they're willing to do it and work together with us for a long term, I think we would probably look into that. Uh, to add on to that question, are there, are there any fruits you've tried uh, in your travels or wherever uh, that you'd like to use, but because of supply issues, you, you just can't get enough of, you know, the aseptic uh, puree or something like that? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've done some wacky stuff. We did some dragon fruit. Um, this was probably two years ago. We used it in a Belgian white ale. Uh, we did it for uh, one-off that we collaborated with our local uh, Museum of Fine Arts because they brought in, they had a, a Chinese ex- exhibition coming in that was all about, you know, basically the, uh, it, it kind of went through the history of China and, and going through all of the military garb and all of the historical data going up to how China developed and uh, very cool. And we, we sort of wanted to gear a beer towards them. So finding dragon fruit wasn't an easy task. Uh, I did finally find it. It was very expensive, you know, that's the type of thing. But um, it turned out very well. Uh, you know, it gave a little pink hue to the, to the, uh, to the beer itself. Um, but, yeah, sourcing that stuff does become difficult if you want to use any exotic things, especially that's not cultivated here in the States. Um, you know, you have to find it overseas, and that's why, you know, a lot of it does cost a lot. Uh, not that that's deterring us from anything, but uh, at this point, but, you know, yeah, f- finding something fresh and finding something in quality is very difficult when we do search for fruits, the next fruit to use. Brian's answer is far more mellifluous than mine. I would say not yet. I think the time will come when you can't get what you really want. So you kind of give up. You don't knock your, your head against the wall and you move on to the next one. But yeah, with 4,500 breweries and more coming, it's, uh, the supply might be difficult. So is that an okay answer? Yeah. Uh, the beer... The beer you have now is called Lazy Ballerina. Um, Anyone in the uh, winemaking world out there know what a Lazy Ballerina is? I confess, a little over a year ago, I did not know what a Lazy Ballerina is. But if you figure the uh, 
And for those who are listening to this recording, you'll just have to picture me standing up and putting my arms at the side and acting like a lazy ballerina with my arms out hanging on a trellis or something. The lazy ballerina is the name given to the trellis that the grapevines grow on. I don't know if all uh, winemakers use that term, but we uh, discovered the term and thought it was a uh, particularly appropriate name for this beer. And again, Schlafly doesn't often name beers other than the style. If you look at our portfolio, it's almost all the style of the beer, but uh, Walking Tree Wheat, and I obviously speak with a forked tongue because the first beer we tried was Walking Tree Wheat, and we're finishing with Lazy Ballerina, and those are fanciful names according to the TTB. And we like those things for certain beers in our Ibex series, our large bottle format. The, uh, the Lazy Ballerina is a nod to the collaboration we did with Chandler Hill Vineyards in Defiance, Missouri, um, a local winery. We got some of the uh, grapes and grape must from them and added that to the fermentation of this beer, uh, a Saison, sort of a standard. I know that maybe there's no such thing as a standard Saison, but we made a Saison with the Saison uh, yeasts that we were using. Uh, we fermented it with the grapes and the grape must, and we then uh, after post-fermentation and dropping it out, time and temperature, cleared it out a little bit, added it to the uh, Chandler Hill uh, wine barrels for several months of maturation to pick up the characteristics. So this, this was one of the firsts for us as a, uh, a grape-grain hybrid. And we wanted to make sure we included this beer in tonight's salon uh, to show an example of not just fruit, but... Multi, so this sort of straddles the uh, the categories of uh, wine of sorry of uh, of fruit beers as well as hybrid beers. And uh, we served this beer last year at uh, at Saver, and it was met with great reception by uh, particularly by people who weren't necessarily beer drinkers. And we immediately lunged for their glass to pour them a sample of it. Told them to look at it, enjoy the color, and I. I think you might agree the color is it's a little hazier now but it's got a really uh, lovely ruby color to it and that comes from and entirely from the uh, grape edition the uh, wine edition to this yeah I think, again Stephen brings up a good point of just this little story about giving or introducing you know beer drinkers or not necessarily beer drinkers that are getting into beer drinking and uh, maybe you're coming from the wine background or something like that that's coming back. And the fruit beers do sort of cross over a little bit on onto that, those. This one especially, it's, it's, it's delicious. Uh, that, you know, we found that some of our biggest uh, you know, beers on the fruit side are, are one of our most successful beers in the Reserve Series uh, just because it's a little different. It appeals to a lot of people. Um, you know, and it doesn't have to, it has to be a a barrier now to, for wine drinkers to come in and be like, oh, okay, this is, this isn't, you know, this is a beer. You think of beer as being bitter, you know, it's an IPA or whatever. This, this is something that people will enjoy because you're getting over those facts of that, it, that it is a, the, what goes into a beer being hops. If you're not a hop fan or, you know, some of the yeast or the Belgian yeast, Belgian ales, that this, the fruit sort of bridges that gap a little bit in order to make people comfortable and starting to, to, to appreciate it. Yes. Question. Yes, uh, I came in a little late, so I apologize. It's already been asked, but should we start over? We can go back to the beginning. <laughs> any uh, any objections to? Uh... Um, as far as what phase of fermentation you guys are adding the fruit in, um, is it beer dependent or is it fruit dependent? 
uh, how does that work? Or do you have a certain time that you like to add the fruit in? Uh, for us, it's uh, primary or secondary fermentation, as we discussed earlier, because uh, both of us are using either purees or real fruit purees that uh, Brian can speak to that, that they're making. For the most part, it's early in the uh, system. I was talking to my uh, boss, Dan Kopman, earlier and about our pumpkin beer. And the pumpkin beer is not a fruit beer, uh, but we do use real pumpkin juice. And that's added to the kettle because that's more like a sugar addition than it is a flavor fruit addition. So I think the more delicate the item, the later it's added. Um, for our coffee stout, there's no secret here. There are very few secrets in the brewing industry. For our coffee, we don't add it to the mash. We don't add it to the kettle. We make a toddy. Basically, we make a concentrated coffee, keep it in the cooler, cold toddy extraction. We add that to the final beer. So there are a lot of ways to add fruit to beer, but uh, I know we're getting close on time, and Brian may want to touch on this answer as well. So. Yeah, yeah, real quick to just sort of complement what he said. You know, ours, during fermentation, we kind of let it taper down to maybe the last day or two of fermentation, so we sort of track where it's going on a, on a fermentation profile, make sure the yeast is sort of active and still in suspension, put in the fruit, and then let it, let it sort of ramp up again and back down as we crash cool and let time uh, do its thing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in general, uh, going on, uh, touching on the, the pumpkin and the sort of squash type of beers that we do brew we do a pumpkin beer as well um instead of in the kettle we put ours in the mash tun so it's it's a puree that we put in the mash so we allow some conversions to happen there to get some flavors out of there and get the sugar extract that we're looking for out of there to 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 provide sugar for that beer so i heard the applause next door and i think that means we're ready for hour number two here so we uh, our second part of our yes uh, (laughs) well Thank you very much to, to Brian and Stephen. Let's give it up for them. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2016, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2016, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.